thank you, Esther, for that ministry, and good morning, everyone, including all of those of you who are tuning in from uh, different parts of the city and also uh, in this church building and various parts of Alberta. Uh, when I was in my teens, I played on a hockey team that wasn't having a very good season, which is a nice way of saying we were losing a lot. And uh, after um, our fourth loss in a row, our coach um, was really upset. And he walked into the dressing room, slammed the door, and locked it. Not a good sign. You know something's coming. And boy, did something come. He let us have it. Now, the guys on my line, we figured that we were playing fairly well because we were scoring most of the goals. And to be honest, we were getting increasingly frustrated with our teammates um, and somewhat critical of them. Uh, quietly, of course. Just kind of among ourselves. And so when the coach began pointing out our, uh, you know, the weakness in our defense and then uh, went from one line to the other, we were a bit smug sitting there. Uh, and inside, each of us were kind of thinking, way to go, coach, you know, preach it. You know, let them have it. It's about time that you straighten them out on their lackluster effort. And then the coach turned to us. Now, we figured that, you know, he was going to say something like, now, this line is the way you guys ought to be playing. And that's not what he said. He ended up giving us the worst critique of all. Not so much for our play, but for our attitude. And basically made it clear that it was our attitude that was causing the team to feel deflated and to not do as well. Well... We were surprised, we were shocked, we were hurt, humiliated all at once. But we had to admit deep down inside that he was right. And we actually grew through that correction. And our team actually began to play better. But have you ever noticed how prone we are to celebrate the failures of others? To almost kind of enjoy critiques that others are receiving? and yet be so totally blind to the same issues and weaknesses in our own lives? Well, this was true of the people who lived in Amos' day, the next prophet that we're looking at as we continue to make our way through the Old Testament. The children of Israel were enjoying a time of prosperity, and they were feeling pretty secure because the nations around them really weren't a military threat. Even Assyria that would one day conquer them wasn't a threat at this time hadn't really grown to be a superpower. And so they were feeling secure. They were feeling prosperous. They were very critical of the ungodly nations around them and their wickedness. And they made a point of, you know, when they sat around at their dinner table talking about how awful the people are over there. You know, their morality and, and how immoral they are and how wicked they are. But they were unprepared for the stern warning that God would give them through the prophet Amos. And so I'm going to invite you, if you would, to turn to the book of Amos at this time and um, also to stand with me as we dedicate our time in the Word to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for introducing us to 
some of these things you communicated to the people of that day through your prophets. And some of those words, Lord, are really encouraging. They remind us of how much you love us and and the fact that you love us with an irrational and unconditional love. And Lord, we're blessed by that. But some of the other words, Lord, really hit right to the core. Expose things in our lives, Lord, that we've got to deal with. And the message that you've given or that you gave Amos, Lord, is, is one of those messages. It's a hard message, Lord, to read, much less try to apply to our lives. But I ask, Lord, that you would give us the capacity to do that today. That you'd humble our hearts, you'd soften our hearts. You'd focus our minds, you'd give us courage, Lord, to receive what you're saying to us and then to follow through on what you're asking us to do. It's a heavy message, Lord, and I ask that you would help me as I try to deliver it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let me start out by introducing you briefly to the prophet Amos. Amos lived and ministered around 750-760 BC or around 200 years after the nation of Israel was torn apart by a civil war that really resulted in the formation of two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel, the capital of which was Samaria, and the southern kingdom uh, called Judah, the capital of which was Jerusalem. He was a farmer who grew up in the southern kingdom of Israel in a tiny village just about 12 miles south of Jerusalem called Tekoa. Amos was a humble man, but he was a fearless man. He was a man who could be frank. He was a man who had the capacity to shoot straight from the hip. He even told the king what to do, fearlessly. Well, one day he is going about doing what farmers do when he receives a very distinct call from God to be his messenger to the northern kingdom of Israel, his cousins up north. Well, Amos responds to God's call. He heads to Samaria to begin his prophetic ministry, and he positions himself in the public square somewhere in Samaria, and in obedience to the Lord, he begins his ministry by announcing God's plans to judge the neighbors of Israel. We read in verse 3, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Now you'll notice that little phrase, for three sins of Damascus, even for four, you'll see that again and again. That's just the Hebrew way of saying God's patience has, it's basically ended. It has run out. The people have gone too far for too long. Now, Damascus was Syria's capital, and God condemned them because, according to verse 3, she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. In other words, they treated the people of Israel with unspeakable cruelty. And understandably, therefore, the Israelites were not too fond of the Syrians. And so when they hear Amos tell all that's wrong with their neighbors to the east and also 
communicate God's impending judgment on those bad people, well, a crowd forms very quickly. Hey, I kind of like this, like what this guy's saying. Hey, get over here. You got to listen to this guy. Well, the crowd swells even greater when Amos announces God's judgment on the Philistines, their arch enemies to the southwest in the Gaza region. Israel despises the Philistines for capturing entire villages of people and selling the men, women, and children to slavery. Amos goes on to condemn the city of Tyre also for slave trading, and then Edom for its revengeful spirit, and then Ammon for their violence and their insatiable desire to obtain Israel's territory. And then Moab for an extreme spirit of revengefulness. Then Amos turns the focus on Israel's blood brothers in the south, Judah, and lets them know in no uncertain terms that God's not happy with them either because they are rejecting the law of the Lord. And the crowd at this point is jubilant. I mean, this is so wonderful to hear because God is obviously on their side and is going to make all of their enemies pay. This is wonderful. Preach it, Amos. Amos has the crowd eating out of his hand. That is until he does the same thing that my hockey coach did to us. He turned to them and he says this in verse 6. For three sins of Israel. Israel? You talking to us? This is for us? Are you serious? Yes. For three sins of Israel, even for four. I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. Human life has no value to them, in other words. A pair of sandals means more to them than a human life. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl. That's referring to the female prostitutes at the temple. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Immorality was rampant. When Amos finishes saying this about them, I mean, you could hear a pin drop. No one's cheering anymore. No one is saying anything. Because as far as they're concerned, Amos has stopped preaching and he started meddling. Started meddling in stuff that he had no business meddling in as far as they were concerned. And Amos says, so why are you all so quiet all of a sudden? A moment ago, you were delighted to hear that God's going to judge your enemies. But make no mistake, he says, God wants me to tell you that you are no different than they are. Oh, your, your, your sins may be different, but they're just as sinful as those of your neighbors. And unless you turn from them, 
God's going to deal with you in the same way that he's going to deal with them. So what is it here that God just can't stand anymore in Israel? Well, it isn't because they aren't studying the scriptures enough. And it isn't because they aren't being faithful in worship. In fact, we have every indication that they were very religious, that they were very faithful in meeting together for worship, hearing a good sermon and growing in their knowledge of God's word. They were very faithful in keeping the religious festivals and rituals. In fact, turn over to chapter 5, verse 21. It says there, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. God says your worship means nothing to me. You're faithful in worship, but it means nothing to me. Your songs may communicate how much you love me, but they are just words to me because I see your heart. And, and, and when I look at your heart, it's obvious to me that the temporary things, having bigger and better things, are more precious to you than I am. Over in Amos 2.6, the Lord says, you sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. In chapter 3, verse 10, he sa verse 10, he says, you hoard stuff in your houses more than you ever need. In verse 15, he says, I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory. In other words, they're luxurious. And he says, it will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. He's saying... Your exuberant singing, your raised hands in worship mean nothing to me because you're greedy. You're hoarding far more than you need. You live in luxury. And yet your giving to those who are in need reflects little concern for the poor or the hurting. In chapter 4, Amos says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Now, as I said earlier, Amos was a bold farmer. He was a bold prophet. Here he's comparing the wives of the wealthy and the powerful to the cows of Bashan. You got to be bold to do that. <laughs> but you see, traveling evangelists and prophets, you know, they can get away with this. You know, they kind of blow into town, into a church, and they call women cows, and they get away with it because they just blow out of town the next day. They leave us pastors here to clean up the mess. See, we pastors, we do life with our people. We live among them. And so when we get up here to speak week in and week out, we... Uh, do the best we possibly can to communicate the truth in love. 
with lots of love. So I probably would have picked a different illustration than Amos did. But the reality is Amos wasn't name-calling here. He, he was just trying to wake them up by giving them a very vivid and powerful illustration. You see, Bashan was a very fertile area. It, it, it was rich with vegetation, and so the cows who grazed there, they were famous for being well-fed. Now, if you think about it, you know, horses, they serve us in so many different ways. Dogs... They do too. Well, at least the, the regular-sized dogs. I'm not sure about the rat-sized dogs, what they're good for. Uh, but we won't go there. And of course, for the life of me, I, I, I still can't think of anything that a cat does that's useful. Um, at least not in this city. But you know, but you know I was thinking about this. Uh, I do see I have two or three fans out there on that one. But, but you know, as I, as I think about it, you know, cats on the farm, where all cats should be, by the way, you know, uh, they're useful for keeping down uh, the mouse population, right? So, uh, yay cats. <laughs> Never thought I'd say that. But. but what good is a cow for? I mean, a live cow. I mean, a cow is just a walking appetite. I mean, a cow basically just has one concern. Where can I get more food? And that is Amos' point here. He's saying God isn't interested in your worship. Because like a cow, most of your waking hours are just spent on satisfying your own appetite for more. Dreaming about, thinking about, planning about how you can have more. More money, more pleasure, more luxuries, nicer homes. And Amos says your lifestyle and your behavior is living proof that your hearts have grown cold and distant from me. Because if you were close to me, your heart would break over the things that break my heart. Well, the people, um, they've heard enough. And so uh, their representative, we read in chapter 7, uh, Amaziah, the, the priest at Bethel, back by the king, he approaches Amos, and he basically says, you know, Amos, your, your preaching is terrible. And he says, you know, we've heard about enough, and I think you need to mind your old business, pack your bags, and get out of town. And to be honest, it's at this point in the sermon that I'd like to pack up and get out of town as well. You know, this is a tough message to live, much less stand in front of thousands and preach. And there's a part of me that just wants to stop right here and, and basically say, well, there you go. Thus saith the Lord, let's stand for the benediction. But of course, the Lord won't let me do that. The question he's been asking me all week and that he wants me to ask you now is what will you do with what you just heard Amos say to his people?
Because it wasn't just directed to them, you know. It's in the scriptures for a reason. God has something to say to us. So here's a summary of some of the things God's been speaking to me about. First of all, God loves the poor as much as he loves you and me. Psalm 145, 17 says, God is loving toward all that he has made, which means all human beings, whether rich or poor, educated or uneducated, have an irreducible glory and significance to them and are worthy to be treated with dignity and respect. Now, while God loves all that he has made, the scriptures clearly articulate that he has a special concern for the less fortunate. Proverbs 14, 31 says, he who, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. God says, you show contempt for me when you regard the poor or the needy as worthless. When you have this attitude that they are worthless or that they mean less than somebody else because all of my children are precious to me. God loves the poor as much as he loves you and me. Furthermore, our love for God is evidenced by our concern for the least of these. In Amos 5.24, the Lord says, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-falling stream. The Lord's saying here that justice is connected with righteousness. In other words, there is a connection between your relationship with God and the way that you treat other people. And you can't have one without the other. The one is a reflection of the other. In Ezekiel 18, we read this. Suppose there's a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend at usury or take excessive interest. Ezekiel says here that a just person does not commit robbery, and then he goes on to define that as giving food and clothing to the poor. In other words, the Lord's saying, if you are not actively and generously sharing your resources, you're a robber. You're not living justly, and your life is not where it should be with God. In Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus taught that on Judgment Day, there's going to be many people who claim to have believed in Jesus who he is going to reject. His true sheep, he insists, have a heart for the least of these, which Jesus defined as the hungry, as the stranger, the naked, those imprisoned. In other words, Jesus was saying that his followers would create a new community in Christ that does not exclude the poor, the immigrant, the powerless, but rather within that community does all that they can to provide practical and spiritual support to the needs of the people in that community. Now, make no mistake, in this discourse, Jesus is not saying 
that doing all of this for the least of these is the means or the way to salvation or the way to eternal life. No, it is a sign. It's an indication that you already have salvation, that you already have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a connection. Jesus says, when you embrace others, you're embracing me. He says, when you ignore the poor, you're ignoring me. In short, your heart attitude toward the least of these reflects and reveals your heart attitude toward Jesus. John was making this point in 1 John when he said, if any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Tim Keller says, anyone who has been truly touched by the grace of God will be generous. He says, imagine that you have a, um, a, de a deathly illness. Your doctor comes to you and says, you're going to die unless you get help. And I'm here to tell you that we have a medicine that is 100% effective in dealing with the illness that you have. It will cure you. Without it, you have no hope of survival. However, says your doctor, it is really expensive. And you're going to have to sell everything that you have in order to obtain it. It's your decision, he says. Well, I mean, think about it. How long would you have to think about that? You say to your doctor, well, you know, if I die, you know, my cars aren't going to mean a whole lot to me. I mean, what good is my house going to be? What good is the stuff I've got in the bank account? I must have that medicine. All these other things which, which were so important to me are expendable now. They pale in comparison to the medicine. It's more precious to me than anything else. You see, folks, that's what the Apostle Peter meant when he said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, to you who believe, he, Jesus Christ, is precious. To you who have experienced and know the power of God's saving grace, he, Jesus Christ, is precious. The grace of God makes Jesus absolutely precious to us, so much so that our possessions, our money, our time, all have become utterly expendable. They used to be crucial to our happiness, to our sense of identity, but no longer. Our identity is now found in Jesus Christ. Our hope, our life, our eternity is based and found on Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so how's everyone doing about now? Doing okay? You still breathing? <laughs> this, is, this is heavy teaching, isn't it? And it raises all kinds of questions. Oh, 
You know, you think you've got questions. Wait until you have to stand in front of 10,000 people <laughs> and realize that everything you're talking about, you've got a whole lot of people kind of looking at you and assessing your life. So all kinds of questions. And the biggest one, perhaps, is this. What can I really do? I am just one person, and we're just one church. We can't eliminate world poverty. Well, the short answer to that question is, is we haven't been called to eliminate or to do it all. We've been called to be faithful, to be good managers with what God's given to us. See, a manager isn't the owner. He just carries out the wishes of the owner. God owns everything that I have. He owns my money, my possessions, my very life. Every breath is a gift from him. He's the boss, I'm not. And he's called us to not hoard what he's given to us, but to be generous with it, promising us that if we're generous with what he gives to us, he will provide everything that we need. Not everything that we want, but everything that we need. He knows that if we get greedy, our world's going to get needy. And he wants to do his work of compassion through us. And so he asks one thing of us, and that is that we're generous with what he's given us. We're his conduits of his grace, his love, his compassion. Years ago, a relief agency produced a poster that asked, how can you help a billion hungry people? And the answer was right on target. It said, one life at a time. Just because I can't meet the needs of all the people and all the poor in the world doesn't mean that God isn't calling me to help one person or five people or more. Another question that comes to mind is, how can I discern whether someone really is needy? Many of us have been conned by people. You know, people pretending they have a need and after a while, you know, when you've been conned and you know you've been conned, you can get a bit cynical. You get to the place where you just stop giving completely. And often that kind of becomes a good excuse not to give, doesn't it? The reality is there are different causes of poverty. And we need to respond accordingly. For example, if a person is poor because she's being exploited or she's being oppressed in some way, then we need to do what we can to remove and, or at least to mitigate the oppression. We're going to talk a little bit more about that when we review the book of Micah. On the other hand, if a person is poor because his home and perhaps his livelihood was, uh, was wiped out because of a flood or because of an earthquake, well, then folks, we need to open our wallets. We need to be generous. And we, as individuals, we need to be generous as a church. And, and we need to um, give this money to those who are in crisis in order to help them to, to rebuild their homes and, and to reestablish their businesses. 
When the tsunami hit a few years ago, our church not only sent hundreds of thousands of dollars to those uh, who were hit in that crisis and who lost everything, but we also sent an additional $100,000 to help fishermen in Sri Lanka replace their fishing boats that they'd lost, which was critical to their livelihood. It was their business. Now, if a person is poor because of personal sin, in other words, because of self-indulgence, because of living beyond their means, or because of just plain laziness, then we should not give them financial support except perhaps for a very short period of time supplying their most basic needs until they're able to um, start working again. See, Genesis 2.15 says that God took the man and he put him in the garden to work it. Many people have this idea that work is part of the curse that happened after man went south in the Garden of Eden. That's not true. This passage happened before the fall did. We were put on this planet to work it and to care for it. God created us to work, and when we are able to work but unwilling to work, we're not only missing out on that which God intended to bring meaning and fulfillment in our lives, but we risk falling into poverty. And as I said a moment ago, in such a case, neither the family or the church should rescue that lazy person. Because, you know, the order that we see in the Scriptures is that when there's a family member who has financial crisis, the first uh, line of defense, so to speak, is the family. The family needs to be approached about supporting their family member. The extended family does. And then, if that doesn't quite meet it, then the church is supposed to come alongside and, and help out to meet the needs. You see, Ecclesiastes says, a fool folds his hands behind his head, and it leads to personal ruin. Now, even if you don't have a financial reason to work, God still wants you to work, regardless of your age. It may not be a nine-to-five job, but he still wants you expressing the gifts that he's given to you, the, the talents he's given to you by volunteering your time somewhere, whether it's, and hopefully, it's going to be in God's kingdom because, boy, God's looking for people to serve in his kingdom. Contrary to popular opinion, by the way, there's no retirement in the Christian life. I hate to just kind of poke a hole in your bubble, but that's, that's the way it is, folks. Oh, I, I, I sure hope when you get to retirement age that you slow down a little bit because that's the, really what retirement should be, to slow down a wee bit, just a wee bit, okay? Just gear down one, you know, not completely, you know, don't park it, all right? <laughs> want you to slow down a little bit, but as long as God is blessing you with health and with strength, he still wants you to exercise your talents and gifts. And by the way, even if you don't have health like you'd like it anymore and strength, Man, you have the privilege of praying. The most powerful ministry that we as Christians have. You know, I admire a growing number of people in our church who, who just don't need the income. 
but they give countless hours to the ministry of our church or to some other ministry that they're passionate about. Now, again, if you want to help meet the needs of the poor, but, you know, you don't want to get conned, you don't know where to start, I want to encourage you to talk to our missions team, particularly to our CSC at work team, and and consider volunteering with them. And by all means, support the ministry of our church financially to help us to continue to minister to our community, to our world that's in need. Because our CSC team, for example, they're trained to ask the right questions, to provide guidance and care and support to those who have legitimate needs. Well, I know that there are so many other questions that surface when you deal with this issue of poverty and particularly what our responsibility is to the poor and the implications it has on the way that we live our lives. You know, we wonder about, you know, well, what kind of lifestyle should, should we be living? And, and uh, you know, in, in past sermons, I've, I've given tons of principles of um, what all of that means. But we have questions like, is it okay to own this? Is it okay to do that? And, and all those kind of things. Well, the best short answer that, that I can give you is simply this, and that is, stay in the Word. This is God speaking to you and me. Read the Word regularly. Have an open heart. Every time you open this book, say, Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me? As a fam, get together and ask that question. Lord, what are you saying to us uh, about these matters? Don't make decisions solely on the basis of what others are doing or aren't doing. I mean, you know, in fact, be careful not to become judgmental of what others are doing or not doing. I mean, you know, if we want to destroy the church real quick, let's get on that, let's get on that track. You know, we're all going, I can't believe the car that person's driving. Did you see their house? Can you believe what that person's wearing? I mean, that's just all we need. And we will destroy everything that the Lord wants to do in and through us. I can tell you right now. You know, we cannot sit here and, 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 and judge other people and all the rest. We have to go to God and let him speak to us. You can fool everybody in the world. You know, you can walk around like you're a pauper and you've got millions stashed away in the bank. And everybody thinks, oh, that poor person, you know. Man, they're great stewards. Look at them. They just don't have anything. And yet you're hoarding it all in the bank. God knows about that. That's why you've got to get your lead and your direction from him. The, all the external stuff. You know, who are you fooling? Who am I fooling? Each of us must go to the Lord individually. We need to go to the Lord as couples, as families, and ask him to show us what he would have us do or not do. And as we seek the heart of God, I'd like to suggest there's a couple of questions that we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis. Questions which grow out of the message today. The first one's this. Am I living simply? so that others can simply live. Here in Amos, God was not only upset with their neglect of the needs of the poor, but with their, with their hoarding. 
their insatiable appetite for more and more and more. Folks, all of us need to ask God and those that we love and trust, when is enough enough? When are we just going to stop and say, I don't need bigger, better, newer, or more? Because my ultimate satisfaction is in the Lord and his call on my life. I have everything I need. You know, more and more Christ followers are, are kind of doing the math. They're going to God. They're seeking his heart. And they're saying, you know what? This is all I need to live. And they make a decision that anything beyond that, they're just going to be generous with. They're going to use to further the kingdom, uh, God's kingdom work. I mean, folks, can you imagine the impact we would make if all followers of Jesus Christ did that? That's just the first question. Am I living simply so others can simply live? Second question, am I giving generously of my time, talent, and money? In Amos 7, verse 7, we read this. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. A plumb line is nothing more than a weight. It's like a stone with a string attached to it. And its purpose is simply to tell you if something is straight or whether it's crooked. It's the standard by which everything else is measured. And God is saying here in Amos chapter 7, I'm setting a plumb line among my people. And the plumb line for those who are in right relationship with me is this. It is a heart for the things that break my heart. Now, you know, I can usually find someone who's more materialistic or greedier than I am. And I, as a result, you know, I can look at that person and I can convince myself that, you know, you know, that I'm doing okay, that God must be okay with the way I'm living my life and my lifestyle. Now, I can usually find someone and say, well, compared to him, <laughs> I'm a virtual pauper. And I can begin to rationalize and say, you know, I want to be generous, but I just need to buy this yet. Or, you know, someday when things settle down, yeah, I'm... I'm going to jump in with both feet and begin to reach out to my neighbor or begin to serve or whatever. You know, we have an endless capacity to rationalize. And yet in doing so, we're closing our blinds to the needs of those around us. We're closing our eyes to half the world's population, three billion people who are living on less than $2 a day. We're closing our eyes to nearly a billion people who go to bed hungry most every night and have little access to clean water. We're closing our eyes to the needs of those that God has brought into our lives, who's brought into our community, right into our church, who need a helping hand. 
You know, we can rationalize all we want. But the question the Lord is going to ask us come judgment day is what did you do with the time I gave you? What did you do with the abilities that I gave you? What did you do with the resources I gave you? God says, I'm going to measure the heart condition of my people, not in terms of how they compare with each other. No. I'm going to measure it according to the plumb line I've set. What did you do with the least of these and with the things I gave you? Are there hungry people? Then feed them. Are there sick people? Pray for them. Are there lonely, unpopular people? Visit them, welcome them, include them. Are there spiritually ignorant children, troubled youth? Teach them, love them, shepherd them. Are there hurting people? Minister to them in love. God says that's the plumb line. Whatever you do for others, you've done it for me. Imagine, friends, if all of us did what Amos is calling for here. If all of us were to blanket our world with the love, the generosity, the care of Jesus Christ. You may think that you can't make a difference, but if you're available to God, he'll use you in ways that you could never imagine. You know, I'm thinking of a couple in our church who have now gone to be with the Lord just in the last few years, but who decided years ago that even on a missionary and a pastor's salary, they would live a very simple lifestyle so that they could give to the mission of our church, to the ministry training of young men and women, to Bible colleges, and on top of all of that, so that they could support over 200 orphans in South America. Well into his 80s, John worked in his wood shop, building wooden crafts which he sold at craft sales, the proceeds of which he used to support the many orphans that he cared about. Amazing testimony. I'm thinking of Jim, another man from our church who visited El Salvador shortly after the 10-year Civil War and the devastation around that time of the earthquakes that came to that country. People were living in tents under tarps for up to 10 years, often with little or nothing to eat. Jim's heart was, was wrecked by what he saw, and he sensed God leading him to begin building homes for the poorest of the poor, including women and children who had been abandoned by their husbands. He partnered with a local church in San Vicente, and then he headed back home to, to recruit and to organize work teams. And over the last 10 years, Jim and his work teams have built over 500 homes and are well on the way to building an additional 100 this year. Amen. The church, go ahead. That is something worth celebrating. The church in San Vicente has experienced explosive growth because as they have partnered with Jim's ministry teams, they've been reaching out to the community 
And the community has begun to see the connection between the righteousness of God and the justice of God expressed in practical ways. Recently, the president of El Salvador showed up. Jim wasn't there, but he personally thanked one of Jim's partner for the generosity of their teams and the investment they've made into the people of El Salvador. I'm thinking of a young mother who was hurrying to buy groceries one day for her family. She was in a rush when she discovered that, like we often do, she was in the slow line. And so she's there and she's wondering why it's the slow line. And she looks and she notices that there is a woman at the front of the line with tattered clothes who is frantically rummaging through her purse, obviously looking for more money to pay for the rest of her groceries. People in front of her begin complaining. The cashier begins to feel the tension starts getting short with her, suggesting that she just take back the groceries that she can't pay for. Well, this woman, she feels God tugging on her heart, suggesting that she pays the woman's bill, and her first thought is, no way. My husband's going to kill me. But then she thinks about how God has blessed her. How could she not say yes to his call? And so she approaches the checker and she quietly says, can you add my groceries to her and I'll pay for it all? Amen. It was unplanned. It was unscheduled, but God blessed her with joy beyond measure just for being obedient. I'm thinking of a family who saw a young couple struggling financially and gave them a leg up by offering them an interest-free loan. I'm thinking of another family who helped a student who had limited means who was headed for ministry by paying a portion of his tuition. I'm thinking of a man in our church who spends hours every day just being of whatever help he can around the church to people who are in need, delivering grocery hampers, helping people move. I'm thinking of a small group who stood with one another and stood particularly with a couple who were facing a serious health crisis. And they stood with that couple for a number of years, providing financial, prayer, moral support, Friends, you never know the difference that one human being or one small group or one church can make. But God does. God knows his plans for you and me, and they'll become a reality if we step out and follow his lead. I'm going to invite you now to bow your heads and close your eyes. Just spend a few moments talking to God about what he's been saying to you. This past week, we, we held the funeral of a young father, only 39 years of age. Dave Milam was a man who lived every day of the fullest. He, 
He lived more in those 39 years than many people do in 80 years. He lived his life to the fullest. He also lived it, though, with eternity in mind. And God used him to impact so many lives. And as I listened to the story of his life and the way that he lived it, I was reminded of two things. The importance, first of all, of investing in relationships. And the second was, I guess, summarized in the words of C.T. Studd, who once wrote, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. While we take a few moments to listen to God and to pray, I want us to listen to the words of a song that was played at Dave's memorial service. And as you listen to it, I really trust that all of us here will we'll just make the words of that song our own prayer as we close our time together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, first of all, I just want to thank you for the reminder that you love us unconditionally and that even a tough message like this doesn't come from a heart of anger but from a heart of a loving Father who has our very best interests at heart. Lord, I pray that we will see this message from that perspective. Lord, that we will not condemn ourselves, but that we will turn to you with an open heart. And ask you, Lord, to show us what it means for us going forward. Lord, when it's all said and done, we're really going to understand what matters. By your grace, you have given eternal life. You have given us all that we have in this life. And we are so grateful to you. I pray, Lord, that you will help us not to make the same mistake the people did in Amos' day. They just refused to hear you. They missed the great adventure that you had for their lives. Help us, Lord, to attune our ear to your voice. And whatever it is we hear you say, Whatever assignment it is you give us, give us the courage to respond for your glory and for the sake of a world that so desperately needs the Jesus that we know and love. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Would you please stand? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.